This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. It does represent an abrupt shift in the trajectory of American history. For decades, starting with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a decade after decade, we were working to make it easier for people to vote. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio. This week, we're going to talk about what many consider the bedrock of democracy, the right to vote. I want to welcome our Life of the Law in-studio team, Asagi Obasagi, professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Asagi. Jessica McKellar, software developer, engineer, and author. Hi, everyone. And Tony Gannon, Life of the Law's senior producer. Happy to be here. And joining us from Argo Studios in New York City, Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, Wendy. We're going to start our discussion with a short clip from our recent episode, Government Ghost. Our story was about a man named Dennis Rickett. As a young adult, he lost all of his identification and from that point on couldn't get a government-issued photo ID. It's not as easy as you might think to reinstate your ID after you lose your birth certificate. Losing your ID meant he couldn't vote. Here's a clip from the story. We lived in a fun house which had six families. There was a yard and there was a two-family house in the back. In the summer, sometimes my father, not every summer, would rig our holes out, you know, with a sprinkler so everybody can cool off. He was a regular kid. He went to school, played outside. Me and my father got along really good. Once, not every summer, I think one summer I went with him. He used to drive a plywood truck and I went with him. I think he did that just to get me out of the house. Yeah, it was good. I mean, part of the reason I think I have anxieties is because one of of the things he said, which kind of drives me crazy, is he used to say, if you can't do anything right, don't do it at all. Now, how do you do how do you learn how to do something if you don't do it right? Dennis says his parents were alcoholics, and that meant he spent a lot of time as a kid taking care of his family. I helped them with my grandmother downstairs. You know, she wanted something from the store every day. Then I had to help my other grandmother and my uncle who lived a few blocks away. So, you know, it's all I guess I didn't have the hanging out with the friends at that age. At school, Dennis says a teacher helped him fill out paperwork to get his first piece of identification. If it wasn't for my junior high school teacher, Mr. Ganji, I wouldn't have a social security card. He went out, went well, was, I guess during the summertime, I don't know when he did it, he went out and he got a bunch of social security forms, gave one to all the kids in the class, drew it on the blackboard and showed us how to fill it out. We did that, he mailed them in. That's how I got my social security card. Not through my parents, through a teacher. And after he graduated from junior high school, 
My parents didn't even tell me I had to register for the draft. So I didn't have anything even as a kid growing up. You know, I managed, somehow I registered to vote. I don't remember how that happened. At the age of 25, Dennis was living at home, still taking care of his family. Then, one night, he left the house to help out a friend. I, I was helping this guy out. What the heck was his name? Like, this guy had a record store, and he was moving. I knew him, and he was moving to, like, Queens, and he wanted somebody to stay with his mother because he was also driving for a limousine service while he was trying to get his store going. But when I came home, my mother told me my friend was looking for me. I said, okay, I go find my friend. I found out one of my friends died on his job. So I come, I go back upstairs. I, couldn't, I said, told my mother I couldn't eat. I tried laying down, I couldn't sleep. I said, I want to go out for a walk. I went to a neighborhood bar, had a couple of drinks. At least it seemed like a couple, it could have been more. I come home and my mother says to me, where were you? And I'm like, why? She goes, your father's dead. While Dennis was at the bar, grieving the loss of his friend, his father had gone out looking for him. There was an accident. It was raining. There was a garbage truck parked the wrong way, private sanitation, and he walked around and got hit by a van. Yeah, so, yeah. Imagine that, you come home and your mother tells you your father's dead. I don't know, I think I was in shock. But I think the next day we went down to the morgue to identify the body. It's still hard to believe that he's dead, though. I mean, it really is. For the longest time, I was always hoping, I guess you always expect him to come home right after it happens. Dennis says his family, especially his mom, blamed him for his father's death. And I just got so fed up one day, I just walked out without even thinking. I just, poof, I never went back. Never went back. Problem was, Dennis walked out without first grabbing his ID. No, I didn't bring anything. I just, I just left. I don't know if I ever realized it. I don't think I ever thought about it. Yeah, I just walked. I didn't even know it or not. I just left. So that's just the first part of our story, Government Ghost, about Dennis Rickett. Um, he ends up spending the next, you know, if you go back and listen to the story, which you can find on lifeofthelaw.org or on our iTunes channel, um, you'll, you'll hear how hard it was for Dennis Rickett to actually recapture his identification. In fact, he spends most of his adult life without a government-issued photo ID, which means he cannot vote. So... Wendy, I'd like to start with you. How, how, how common is this that someone without a photo ID, I mean, you think that's pretty uncommon. You can just go recapture it somehow. Or, but how, how, is he an anomaly? You know, unfortunately, he is not. While most of us do have government-issued photo IDs, at least 21 million of us do not have a driver's license or a similar government-issued photo ID. And for many of those people, it's actually quite a burden to obtain one. They need to gain costly documents like birth certificates that they might be very hard to track down and that might cost money that they don't have. They might need to travel far distances. And so for people who, for example, don't drive, live in rural areas, are older and don't expect to drive or travel, for example, this can really be a significant hurdle. And so if, if, if this is Dennis's situation, 
um, being homeless. Is 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 there a direct correlation to homelessness and no voter ID and and the ability to represent yourself in the poll, in the voting booth? Homeless individuals do often have a harder time getting state-issued photo IDs, but there are other groups of Americans who who also have a difficult time, like older Americans, um, especially veterans as well. A significant number of them do not have current state-issued photo IDs. It's important to note that um, in most parts of the country, you don't need a state-issued voto ID to vote. Um, Most parts of the country accept a much broader range of IDs and allow you some alternative ways of identifying yourself, of proving that you are um, who you say you are before voting. So this is a new trend, a new phenomenon in in a a growing but still small number of states to require just a narrow category of government-issued photo IDs to vote. And voters like Dennis or like like um, Sammy Louise Bates, um, who is a, a plaintiff in our case challenging the strictest voter ID law in the country out of Texas, um, that can be um, dispositive and keep them from voting. Where did this come from? I mean, where where did this move to ask for a voter identification when or a photo ID when you go to vote? Where did where, where did this start? And why why is it growing? Actually, over the last decade, um, there's been a quiet, um, at first quiet and now increasingly loud, um, high-pitched battle over voting rights raging across America. Um, Starting um, in um, mid-decade in the 2000s, there was no state in the country that required government-issued photo ID to vote. That didn't mean you didn't have to identify yourself or even, um, you know, show any documentation to vote, but nobody required this kind of narrow, strict, inflexible ID requirement. Um, But starting in uh, with a few outliers in um, the uh, mid-2000s, and then with a huge rush in 2010, states across the country started passing um, laws making it harder for eligible citizens to vote. That included strict photo ID requirements, but it wasn't only those. Um, it also included laws cutting back on voter registration opportunities, laws cutting back on early voting, um, laws requiring aggressive purges of the voter rolls. There was a broad range of new restrictions on voting, something that we hadn't seen in decades in America. Um, and this really started in earnest right after the 2010 election. And today, 23 states um, have laws that make it harder to vote than they did in 2010. That's, so it's been a fairly quick and aggressive move that, that was really quite brand new and out of the blue. But, but where did it come from? Who, who, where, where did that initial impetus come from? What was the basis? Why would anyone want to make it more difficult for people to vote. Well, I think I think one way to think yeah. about this is to put it in a broader historical context. So the idea that we place restrictions on who can vote is nothing new. Historically, we've done being we've done this through mechanisms such as race, or sex, or gender, or we continue to do it by age. Um, so we've always had these restrictions. I think part of what you're asking, Nancy, is is you know what is this new focus on voter ID? Um, but I think placed in a broader yeah. historical context, voter ID is just the most recent iteration of the state's attempt to restrict who can participate in one in the democracy. And one, one way that, to think about it is to say that well, we have we develop new laws to, to suggest that race and sex and gender can't be restrictions on who can participate. 
Well, then perhaps photo ID is another way or a new way to introduce uh, restrictions that can limit who can participate that may benefit one group over others. And and that's absolutely right. This is not the first time we've restricted access to voting, but it does represent an abrupt shift in the trajectory of American history. For decades, starting with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, a decade after decade, we were working to make it easier for people to vote, to increase access to voting. So this, and in fact, before 2008, the first time the Supreme Court heard um, one of these voter ID laws, the last Last time the Supreme Court heard a case involving a law restricting voting access was in 1974. So it's been a real change. We've been opening up our democracy. And there are really two factors at play here. Um, The first is partisanship. Virtually every single one of these states that passed restrictive voting laws passed it with exclusively Republican-controlled legislatures and governorships. So it was, and there's actually social science research that shows that the more Republicans gained seats in in their state houses, the more likely they were to introduce and pass even ever stricter voting requirements. And race was another significant pattern. Every um, state that passed um, restrictive voter ID laws were much more likely to be the states that saw increases in African-American voter turnout, increases in Hispanic population growth. And they're also more likely to be the states that were previously covered under um, a now invalidated section of the Voting Rights Act because of a history of race discrimination in the voting process. So party and race were significant drivers of this. And it all was triggered right after the 2010 elections when Republicans had a a big sweep election winning state legislatures across the country. Mm -hmm. And I think another part of of this conversation or the story is the uh, sweeping demographic shifts in this country. So there's all this interesting Absolutely. data suggesting that, you know, by 2030, 2040, whites will no longer be the majority in this country. And for for certain um, for for certain people, that creates an ex- existential crisis about who will be in control. And so if you place this conversation about voter ID in the broader context of other conversations, such as redistricting and other, uh, other um, political mechanisms to restrict who can have access to the polls, we didn't have, a, uh, I think, a deeper understanding of the type of, of, of concern that uh, certain politicians have that in light of broader social and cultural changes, that they may no longer have the power that they traditionally have had. Absolutely. Um, The demographic anxiety and change is a significant driver of this movement. And and I'll add one additional one, which is not just partisanship, but polarization. Um, There are fewer filters. Um, The partisans are now willing to go farther in trying to claim and consolidate control than before. And redistricting is is another good example of just taking it one step farther. Like, well, there's always been some partisanship in map drawing. Gerrymanders have gotten so much more extreme this decade, so much so than in like an evenly divided state like North Carolina, the Republicans were able to draw a map to guarantee that they retained 
10 out of the 13 congressional seats um, of that um, for the entire decade. And, and that, that has been true in, in a number of other extreme gerrymanders. So we're seeing not only increasing polarization, but increasing willingness to violate some basic norms of our democratic system in order to consolidate and retain power. Mm-hmm. You know, if the vote is the bedrock of democracy, that's where it all starts, is an ability of all citizens to reflect their wishes at the voting booth. Once you start to mess with that, once you start to restrict who gets access and who doesn't get access, there's a fissure in that bedrock. There's, it feels to me that way that all of these challenges to that essential process of voting is undermining, not just for the, you know, maybe liberals, but for everyone, for the conservatives as well. Don't they, isn't there a consideration of when you mess with the process a little too much, you don't know where you're going or what's going to happen to that? But I think part of the issue is that we have to have an understanding that it, that that process has always been messed with. You know, at first it was just white property only men who could vote, and so the process of voting or the foundation of our democracy has always been skewed towards one group over over another. And you know, as as we were recently talking about, you know, we have since the 1960s and 70s been trying to enfranchise more and more people so they can't participate. But that's a mere, I think. Um, you know, that's a that's a distinction that highlights how the entire historical trajectory of voting has been skewed towards um, those in power. And so I think it's while we certainly should be concerned about what's happening, I think we also have to have the broader context to understand that restricting access to the ballot has been essential or a fundamental part of this of our democracy. We haven't fully ever lived up to our democratic or constitutional ideals. I, I think that is absolutely correct. Um, and I think that the attacks that we're seeing right now are among the more significant ones we have seen in a, a really long time. But um, the way in which we restore and revitalize our democracy is to push back against these anti-democratic efforts. So while we must recognize that, you know, this has been part of our history and our our system um, sometimes falters in this way, we can't allow this to continue and to take hold and to become the norm uh, of um, how we run our democracy or or people will not feel like it's legitimate. To go into more detail on pushing back, can, can folks help paint a picture for me of how I should be thinking about how the checks and balances are and aren't working today? You, you know, is it the case that like cases are making their way through the courts that are going to test these things and, and like restore some balance to the system? You, you know, is the only real call to action here like everybody has to get out and vote in every election? I mean, obviously everyone should do that, but like, what, what, are the, what are the tools for pushing back or for restoring a sense of balance? And how are they how are they trending these days? Can, can someone provide some context on that? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I'll start. I, I do think the courts are the most important check on power grabs. So when you have um, temporary partisan majorities, they tend not to be very good 
at checking their own power and um, and that partisanship that goes across different branches of government um, also means that the interbranch um, uh, struggle doesn't um, serve as a check. And so in, in that case, the courts are, are much more important as they are right now when you've had a, a single party um, distorting the system in, in a number of ways. And there are, in fact, a lot of cases going through the courts. Um, on voting, there are currently um, no fewer than 10 cases challenging uh, major voting restrictions across the country, and that number is growing. Um, and, and so the, the Supreme Court has also said that it plans to or has let me correct that. The Supreme Court has also signaled that it intends to take up one of these voting cases. Um, it, it has weighed in or um, thrown up um, smoke signals on several of the case voting cases that have been bouncing through the courts over the last couple of years that it will take this up. And um, so that will be a major test about how well our, our judicial system of checks works and whether or not it will um, restore um, the democratic bedrocks that we're talking about and, and, and rein in some of the excesses of um, the, the voting restrictions. Um, we also have another case um, that's currently pending before the Supreme Court in the redistricting um, context, which for the first time, you know, the Supreme Court might recognize uh, a claim to rein in partisan gerrymandering, which it has eluded it for decades now. But the problem has gotten so much worse and so much more extreme that, uh, you know, the court intervention is critical. And so that will be another early test as to how well the, the court check system operates. When you, just to go back a little bit, I'm just curious, in terms of the legislative landscape um, and this sort of push toward uh, voter photo ID laws, how many of these laws, or is it possible to say how many of these laws would not have, would not have passed if the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was not repealed? back in 2013. Boy, I, I don't have a number at my fingertips, but there is a, a fairly significant portion of them are in states that were previously covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and were passed um, where, where it's very clear that they would have not passed or would have passed with uh, in a much milder form if Section 5 were in place. And two examples that come immediately to mind, um, the, the Texas voter ID law that I mentioned, that was actually blocked under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, both by the Department of Justice and by a three-judge court. But when the Supreme Court invalidated or, or rendered that provision um, no longer operative, um, the the state immediately announced that it was going to implement a law that, that had already been found um, to be discriminatory by right. court. And right. so that that's one very clear example. And North Carolina, um, which um, had put together what was um, a monster voter suppression bill that had um, all sorts of bells and whistles, lots of different restrictions um, in place, um, um, had um, pulled that out only, um, uh, only shortly after the Supreme Court court issued that decision. Previously, it had been considering a very mild um, uh, voter ID bill, um, and it pulled out this giant bill. Uh, the, the, the head of the committee said, let's go with the full bill now, and pulled out something that no one had ever seen before and rammed it through the legislature, right. um, something that a court la later found targeted African-American voters with almost surgical 
precision. That that law is no longer in effect, but that would have not been passed. Um, I, I am confident mm-hmm. if that um, Shelby County law had uh, decision had not been issued. Right. And then- I should say it's not only state laws that you need to be concerned about because voting discrimination happens at the local level as well, and that's in fact where sure. most of the work of the Voting Rights Act was done. And so huh. that's another place that we, we're not even measuring that um, because right. it's, uh, What's it's the so distinction hard there? to capture. What's... Well, our, our elections are run in more than 3,000 election jurisdictions across the country. So there, there are law, the laws of the 50 states kind of set the overall rules, but every single county or city runs its own elections, gets to decide where to cite its polling places, and, and, and decides a whole bunch of the rules that aren't legislated. And, you know, the and they're discrimination or voting decisions that can exclude voters happen um, at that level as well. Mm -hmm. And just as a follow-up, piggybacking off of Jessica's question, I'm I'm just curious, what is the legislative landscape like right now in terms of, of, is there more push? Does it seem like this trend is continuing uh, toward, say, strict uh, voter ID laws? Um, Just in, in general, this sort of trend that we seem to be seeing where it's just sort of like discouraging people to vote. Yeah, unfortunately, the trend shows no sign of abating right now. It, it, it did diminish a little bit um, leading up to the 2016 uh, uh, elections in about 2015, but then it, it has shot up again. This year alone, um, seven states have passed new um, restrictive voting laws. Um, that includes Iowa, Indiana, Arkansas, North Dakota, Texas, and others. I mean, so that we, we've seen, and, and in fact, there were 99 bills pending across 35 states, um, and many of them saw significant legislative action this year alone. So um, we're, we're still seeing a push. I think it was encouraged um, in part by some of the divisive rhetoric around voting in the um, 2016 elections. So, a- yep. and that is also continuing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wendy, going back to the discussion about the courts um, and the courts kind of being the the place where this possibly will have some adjudication, where this will be decided whether this is in fact a fair system of of deciding who votes and who doesn't vote. Um, but the problem is that I'm wondering if if the legislatures are still moving forward with strict voter ID laws, as you just described, the courts are also under the Trump administration, you know, seeing some shifts. Um, I know that um, there's a move to increase the number of federal judges on the courts, in the district courts. There's an attempt um, which could change um, the, how the courts, you know, who's sitting on the bench and then how those courts are going to, if it, you know, approach these these cases coming before them. So it's not just the legislatures that have a, 
have the ability to create these laws that restrict voter ID. It's the courts that potentially are going to be changing under the Trump administration that will be hearing these cases. So are you concerned about, you know, the opportunity of the courts to be the adjudicator of this? You know, I, I am certainly concerned about um, uh, significant changes to the judiciary, especially some of the more recent developments with um, with um, judicial nominees who were rated by the American Bar Association as unqualified being put forward and being confirmed for the bench. And that that's a, a new and um and really disturbing development that I think should um, concern everybody. Um, you know, we have seen um, in the voting context um, both um, Republican appointee and Democratic appointee judges ruling in favor of voters. So unlike in the legislative context, there there has been less of a breakdown along partisan lines um, that will, you know, certainly... Um, you know, that that could change over time. And, and it's something that we should watch. But as more and more information has come to light about not just the negative impact of these laws and how they keep people like um, the subject of your um, last report from being able to vote, but also that the justification for these laws is, is really baseless, that there, there's no significant problem that we, we don't have under control, that we don't have adequate controls for, uh, of the kind of voter fraud that these laws target, courts are more and more skeptical of the laws. So I, I am you know, I'm, uh, cautiously optimistic that um, the courts will do the right thing. Um, you know, as it heads to the U.S. Supreme Court, that, um, that certainly becomes harder to predict. And, um, and and what the U.S. Supreme Court decides will will really um, set the lay the groundwork for what our voting rights protections are going to be going forward, and, and and how many of these laws are really going to be pushed, and how strict they're going to be. The other thing I should note is that state legislatures are in fact responsive to what they perceive, whether or not they perceive. Um, there, um, that the courts will strike down restrictive voting laws. And so when courts have started um, pulling, pushing back against the laws, we saw fewer states uh, moving forward with aggressive voting restrictions. Um, as um, the courts have been quieter, states have been more emboldened. How, I mean, you must study this every day. So how, how, how's the vote coming down in your anticipation of the Supreme Court ruling, where is Gorsuch on this? I mean, he's the newest Supreme Court appointee by the Trump administration. Where, what, what's the latest <laughs> estimate of how the Supreme Court's going to see this? You know, the, it, it's hard to predict how the court's going to rule in these voting rights cases. Um, there, there's a number of different issues at play. I think um, there's um, some optimism around the recent partisan gerrymandering case. Um, it, it was a very strong case. Um, there, there was a, a very strong 
and bipartisan presentation to the court that this is a serious problem. It's not a problem that can be solved by the political process. We need the courts to intervene. Um, democracy depends on this. Um, and um, the justices seemed very open to the arguments. Um, and there was a strong, um, so I think that there's some, I, I'm cautiously optimistic of a favorable outcome in the against partisan gerrymandering. I think there's less information about how the court will handle voting cases. There is one voting case that is going to be heard by the court in January involving um, a purge of the voter registration rolls in uh, Ohio. Um, but that case, uh, and that case, while it's certainly very significant, does not, um, won't impact um, how the courts deal with these other kinds of voting restrictions. I think it, as a layperson, it, when I hear things like people have been nominated or appointed to courts who have been deemed unqualified by the bar, it's hard to assume good faith and intentions behind those actions. That makes this whole conversation seem really discouraging, and Nancy has looked really sad throughout the entirety of this conversation. I guess, can you speak to if the right systems are like, do the rights checks and balances exist today? And like, they play out over long time scales, but in the end, it is a well designed system. Or, or like, if you could wave a magic wand and change, like, add laws or cha change the way that things work, like change the the change the structure of the system to um, more consistently encourage enfranchisement? Are, are there things that we don't have in place today that maybe other countries have or that you would like to see given your research? Can you, can you, do you get the, sort of get the question? Can yeah. you speak to that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we have a major structural problem that partisans and partisans who run under um, our electoral systems set the rules for those electoral systems. And that is unique to the United States. Other countries don't do that. So other countries don't have legislatures um, deciding what the rules for voting are and, and what kinds of voter ID requirements will exist and what kinds of exceptions will exist or new processes will exist for people who don't have those IDs. There isn't that kind of gamesmanship because they either have um, some kind of nonpartisan commissions or, or civil service deciding those. Um, same with um, redistricting, that those lines, and most Americans agree. In fact, I think only 2% of Americans polled think it's a good idea for politicians to be drawing the lines under which they run. So these are, um, and, and there are some great reform efforts um, and, and some very successful ones in some states to um, take the redistricting process away from partisans. Um, but, you know, absent federal legislation nationwide and, um, and um, uh, other major changes in the states, um, that's not going to happen. So right now, we, we need to rely on really three um, protections that we have in place. The courts. Um, we, we need the courts to stand up for our, our democratic constitutional system. Um, we need voters to actually speak up and to um, reject efforts to manipulate or, or rig the system. And then in some states um, that you can actually change the rules for how elections are run by ballot initiative. So you voters can take it out of the hands of 
elected officials. And that's how a lot of the redistricting reforms that have been successful have been put in place. So that's another option available because, you know, really there's an inherent conflict of interest when legislators are, are writing the rules for their own elections. Sure. What about this, what seems to be a trend, I believe it's a trend, uh, toward automatic registration? Yeah, well, that is a real positive development, and I don't want your listeners to think that that it's all been bad. Um, that's uh, we've seen a real, um, the dramatic forward uh, revolution um, in um, how we register voters. Um, and in fact, the Brennan Center um, actually had developed a proposal almost a decade ago for automatic voter registration. And um, it really took off two years ago. And now there are about 10 states that require, and the District of Columbia, that require election officials to automatically register any voter who interacts with the DMV. Um, and um, in several of those states, it goes beyond the DMV to other social service agencies. Um, so, uh, in, and this really um, um, expands upon our current voter registration opportunities because it, it sets the default that you will be registered unless the voter um, declines to be registered unless the voter says, I don't want to be registered. And we've seen real gains in the states that have already implemented this reform, dramatic increases in voter registration rates, and there are starting to be signs that it, that it also will really boost turnout in those states as well. We just have a few more minutes, and what are your final thoughts on this? Well, I think it's bringing it back to the story. What struck me was, you know, in our previous um, previous episode, we talk about a person who was undocumented um, and from whose family was from Mexico and some of the trials and tribulations that he had in terms of making sure he was treated fairly. And uh, this this episode that we're talking today was an interesting parallel in terms of understanding how folks who are U.S. citizens are also undocumented in some ways and some of the hardships they face in terms of being able to fully exercise their own rights. So for me, I've just been thinking about the parallels about being undocumented, both for folks who are citizens and folks who are non-citizens. What struck me about this case was the parallels between people who are citizens and non-citizens, both of whom may not have documents, and thinking about the interests uh, that the state has in making sure that folks have some type of appropriate papers to determine their legitimacy. It's just raised new questions in my mind about what's the utility of that, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, and how can we think about better ways to go about things? I, I, you know, I'm always thinking about this from the perspective of the technologies that are used, and I, it, I can't help but reflect on the fact that um, like computers have enabled us to... to to analyze the data, to you know, to, to to look at voter rolls, to look at how to draw districts in increasingly sophisticated ways, and just what our responsibility is towards making the work that is now being done by computers transparent to the people who are affected by it. Um, because we don't, you know, I think that a lot of this work is happening without really understanding um, uh, what constraints or or what what rules have been put in place by the people designing the software that is executing on these tasks for us? I also think about this question of what it means to be a citizen. Um, often, I suppose, or just maybe in, in the process of making this show in particular, um, and it, it's just it's just I don't I hate to end on a dire note, but I just the the statistics for the number of people that are registered and then the people that actually end up voting is always just kind of like baffling. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I don't, I want to end on this sort of, I mean, my whole thought on it is basically go out there and vote. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I love that ending. I, I want to sort of respond briefly that um, I, I think it's it's critical that you know the state. Um, run elections with integrity, and it is also critical that we make the rules fair in doing so. And currently, the people who are designing the rules have a conflict of interest. They're trying to keep some of the voters from participating because they're not going to vote for them. And so we need to have fair umpires to make sure that we're balancing those. And that's where the courts come in and where they're critical. Technology is also critical, and automatic voter registration is a great example of how we can use technology to break through some of those debates and actually get win-win solutions that both expand access to voting and make our voter rolls more secure. And on what it means to be a citizen, um, it is um, clearly a, a travesty that even in presidential elections and even in the last one, less than 60% of Americans participated. Um, we, we need to be devoting our, our national attention to increasing civic participation, increasing acts of citizenship. And, and I'm uh, hopeful that we are seeing a, a renewal of civic activism that hopefully will um, inspire more people to participate electorally. Um, and hopefully our, um, that will inspire us to look more closely to make sure that the system they're participating in stays fair with fair ground rules. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point to end on. I mean, so much of the conversation on this issue has been about integrity of voters and making sure that you don't have voter fraud, but there has to be a similar investigation to make sure that the state is acting with integrity as well. And so I think we really have to expand that notion of integrity to make sure, as Wendy was saying, that the entire system is behaving in a mechanism that is uh, fair and just. And we'd love to hear from you, our listener. Tell us what you think about voting and the courts, or if you have a question about the law or a news story you want us to sort out. Send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. Thanks to our in-studio team, Asagi Obasagi, professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, Jessica McKellar, software developer, engineer, and author, and Tony Gannon, Life of the Law's senior producer. And a very special thanks to Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. The Brennan Center is a nonpartisan think tank and public interest law center that focuses on fundamental issues of democracy and justice. Wendy joined us from the Argo Studios in New York City. You can find links to everyone's work on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Kirsten Jesuit's Heidel and Rachel Kane will post-produce this episode. Katie McMurrin is our engineer here at KQED. Ivan Kuryev engineered from Argo Studios in New York. We also want to take a minute to thank our listeners who have made donations to support Life of the Law. We hope you'll take a moment to go to our website and make an online donation at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.